0: Estudio Cavernas is a social architecture nonprofit non-profit organization committed to achieving sustainable construction in marginalized communities. It was since 2015 that Juan and Yahoo Cuevas Duran with the whole team have been using architecture to help communities not only physically through the provision of appropriate infrastructure, but also psychologically, through educating and uplifting of the people's skills and confidence. It is their goal to ensure a process that an outcome that reflect and support the local culture, way of living, and the environment. So, we have the privilege of having Juan here to tell us about all the good things the studio has done, but more importantly, about how empowering the construction process can be to the community in conflict areas. Thank you so much, Juan, for joining us in this interview.
1: Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. We're very happy to be able to share some of our ideas in your podcast.
0: It's our pleasure. So um, how did the journey begin for you in this studio?
1: The journey began um, back in 2015. Uh, were, I, were, I was working at the moment in Hong Kong, uh, in a bigger practice. Um, my brother, Jaco, who is the engineer in the Cavernas, was working in Galicia, the north of Spain, uh, with natural mm-hmm. materials. Uh, we had an initial plan of, of doing something different together, and our goal or our idea was to start a post-disaster architecture studio in the Philippines. In order to do so, uh, part of the research involved uh, joining a team, which in this case was Agora Architects, which was a studio based in right. the Myanmar border, to learn a little bit about their practices and the way, the way that the, st- the studio is structured. So during that time, I, I traveled, um, I was in Thailand working with Agora, while my brother was in Laos working in the construction of natural, natural buildings. And we decided to join forces and start something together with uh, in, in Thailand, because we thought it was a, a really good moment. And after gathering a small team, we we changed our mind. I mean, we changed, we were flexible about the plan. So we changed the plan and we started, let's say our first project, which led to the second one, which led us to actually be still there now in
0: Mm. So what was it that hit the switch from, you know, working in an urban setting to a local one, or even having that desire to build post-natural disaster architecture?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a good question because it's, uh, since we're, um, we're, I mean, we more people because we work through collaboration, but initially we established it by uh, me, which I'm an architect, and Jago, which is an engineer. Uh, we were both slightly unsatisfied with the environment we're working on. I was working mostly on the, working with parametric tools in China and Hong Kong, and I joined that kind of work because I thought it could affect a big number of people, so I thought it would have a big impact in the creation of, let's say, new hotel chains or new, even new cities where, when I was in China. Mm-hmm. And my brother was working uh, by, with natural materials in the north of Spain, a lot of experimentation, a lot of alternative techniques, and since he encountered, he encountered the reality of, of Europe and many of the developing places, places is that using natural materials is more expensive than doing traditional housing, concrete housing. Mm. So he was a bit disappointed with the way, with the difficulty of implementing all his, all his knowledge, research and studies. And I was slightly unsatisfied because, because I felt the tools we were using, they were really good on paper and they created uh, very beautiful images. But the reality, again, implementation was very far from what we saw. So we called during uh, building a green city. Yeah, the rendering was quite green, and, and the structures were parametric. But uh, I didn't, I didn't feel, I didn't feel it was impacting. I didn't feel it had the impact I wanted. Therefore, we 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 decided to join forces, to combine efforts, and to start something that was very meaningful for both of us.
0: Mm. I see. So from the surface, what would be the main differences designing and building in both environments, in the urban and what is it, would you call it a a rural environment?
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's rural conflict areas developing countries. Mm. Um... Of course, there are many, many differences. I wouldn't say it's, co- I would not say it's completely different because a project still has the similar stages, which is from preconception to execution and then handover. So let's say the different stages, still exist both. Uh, but number one, and the most noticeable one is the scale of the projects. We, we have always wanted to keep it small because that way we're able to actually control every stage, as a team to control every stage and to control every detail of the building. Whereas when you work in bigger teams, in bigger offices, there are specialized tasks in which you might not be able to get involved or you have less knowledge of. And We decided number one, the scale was going to be, that was one of the the parameters that we wanted to have under control. It was the scale of everything we will do is not going to be controllable. So let's say that that idea of impacting many people, uh, it's it becomes more realistic, which means let's affect the, the number of people that we are, we are able to, to control the outcome of it. And then the second one, and one of the biggest, is uh, realizing that we cannot operate by ourselves. and We cannot operate. Architecture doesn't work in this context, doesn't work like as an independent entity that decides that you're going to do a school classroom. But you need to collaborate constantly with community-based organizations, with local NGOs, uh, you have to organize meetings with the community before, even before you start, even before you decide the project, we were meeting with the community to actually make sure that the project is feasible. So of course, feasibility projects are are important and and the way to make sure that you are in the right direction is by consulting people that has been working there and has a lot of experience in the field. It's a conflict area because Myanmar is is a country that is still under a we can call it a civil ethnic-based conflict yes. inside the country and also throughout the border. So it's very sensitive place. That means that any intervention can affect actually negatively to a community. If you're if you not, you not aware, or if you raise the attention of the Thai authorities, because we operate mostly in Thailand, but it's yes. for Myanmar people, some We we know examples in which you are trying to, in which people was trying to do something good, let's say for for migrants. And this brought attention of the Thai authorities and actually the the community got in problems that they wouldn't have had if they didn't have an architect trying to provide. So the main, main, one of the main keys for us is knowing from the beginning that we're going to do an intervention that's gonna be positive. Uh, Trying to reduce the scale and trying to reduce the impact to make sure it's going to work well, also after we leave. Another big difference, and um, this is not only in developing architecture. I guess it's also because a lot of people does it outside this field. Is bringing an engineer from the very beginning of the project. Yeah. Usually, uh, or oh, at least in my experience, and like many of the people that I that I have worked with, the architect is the one who starts with a concept design. and uh, Later on, let's say, let's say an engineer comes and and guides us on how to develop the different details that we have been working on. The way we operate is completely different. The engineer is, is a key factor from the very beginning and is the one who actually decides what kind of construction techniques will be used or not. This means that we, sometimes we don't, we don't do or we don't design the kind of building we have in mind, which is, of course, very idealistic, but we have to understand very well construction techniques that can be built by people under training, in our case and that determines very much the way that your construction looks. So right. it also determines the, the, the kind of tools you use for design. We, we are used to usually working in plans and sections and renderings, and that, that is enough to communicate with clients and, and most of the time with anybody involved in the project. In our case, the use of 3D models, I mean 3D models, I mean with physical models uh, Built with sticks usually just chopsticks or square sticks, so very mm-hmm. simplified drawing, very simplified models help a lot the construction worker to kind of locate himself and know and know the part of the building he's working on so that's the stage in the, in the first day of construction we look at we look at the models with them they even give some suggestions which later we bring to the studio we modify it and the next model is more accordingly to what they not only what they know how to do but what they be, believe is is more And that way, you know that they have a better level of details, will be cleaner because they are happier with what they're doing. So we do take into consideration a lot their opinion. And this is something that in a bigger scale, you you really have contact with the the construction workers or with the construction manager. You talk to an engineer, which then he communicates to a construction leader, and then he talks to a construction worker. So I think this. That's what we call it building. That's why people call it building through collaboration, is because it's true, it's true collaboration between many parts, and they are all involved. Hopefully, I mean, hopefully, in best case scenario, from the very beginning.
0: Mm. I thought it's very interesting when you say sometimes the intervention is not known by the authority. So I'm wondering, is it the case where what the people desire? Are not that reflected by what the authority wants and if that's so would you call your role as the architect to be the voice of what the people want?
1: Mm, I wouldn't wouldn't say that we are the voice of what they want but I would say we try to help them by trying to try to by giving them the appropriate tools the, which is a very vague concept. I, I understand, but the relationship between migrants and the authorities is always, is never, is never defined on paper. It's always, it's always again very vague. They they know what they can do, they know where they can go, but at the moment, at the moment that the authorities change their mind about something, they might be arrested and deported back to the country, or they might have to pay a fine. This means that us, uh, we cannot help them maybe directly to overcome these issues, but we can make sure that the construction. It goes from beginning to the end by the uh, by communicating with authorities from the beginning, letting them know what we're going to do, and they give us little tips. In a very good example, or maybe it's an anecdote, but during the construction of Green Island, which is an intervention inside a municipal dump site, mm-hmm. the authorities. One of the conditions they gave us once after they visited the site, they said, "Okay, it's very good what you're doing, but we want to see a tight flag on top of that building." Why? Because Basically, you are in Thailand and we are aware that all of these are Burmese people, Burmese and Myanmar people, which is, of course, the a the different name, of different ways of calling the country. Uh, just by that little detail, by, by, by putting a Thai flag that meant that the Thai authorities are allowing us to do it, they felt much more, they, they didn't feel the pressure of stopping the construction or of coming to do some paper checks. Mm. So, I cannot say we, we offer the, the protection they, they deserve. I think we could do much better, but also considering the scale we operate, uh, we do. And then apart from us, there are several bigger organizations that are in direct contact with authorities and institutions, and those are the ones who, who give them voice. So as architects, we give them voice. I would say it's, it's other organizations working on human rights, the one who write them, especially women, which in this, in this culture is very... Are oppressed I would say mm-hmm. uh, the woman are in the last ten, fifteen years uh, the, the role of the woman has, I say, has uh, the conditions of the woman have improved because there are a lot of people, there are professionals working on giving them right. voices.
0: Mm-hmm. That's nice, and, and also because of that, the collaboration becomes more inclusive of not only the many people but the impact are also. More direct, right? As the collaboration
1: becomes more direct, it is, and one of the main reasons we we like this ways because because we consider that a project is successful if after we leave, the people still take care of it and the lessons that were meant to be, I mean, the, the classes that were meant to be taught inside they happen. This means that from the beginning, from the meeting, in, uh, even the const- uh, when we gather a construction team, we get people from that area. What we have to do, let's say, touch roof, which is a lot. We try to hire woman the women that um, are in the community or the, or the wives of the construction workers. Do we tell the kids before we start, if they want to help, imagine when they are more moving land, we, we get people, we get help from the people. And that way they somehow volunteer for their own infrastructure. When we finish, it belongs to them and it will be run by them. So there is no point of doing it ourselves or using high-tech solutions that we know that after we leave, they will not have the tools. And it will just just be left behind. Right, right,
0: right, cool. So now I think we can talk about maybe um, what are the conditions you're usually working with and what specific barriers do you face when designing in this rural environment?
1: Uh, they would, I mean, there's obviously many barriers. Uh, the most obvious one, and the initial one, is the culture and language. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I'm, I'm emphasizing a lot on, on the work of with other commun- with other organizations, because though, though the, the other organizations are specialized on these topics, and anthropologists and socioeconomic people working on social and economic fields. They are the ones who guide us, for example, where to intervene. So mm-hmm. even if maybe you might be, you, you might be thinking that a very small town in a riverside, which is an amazing landscape and doesn't have a school, it's a suitable place to build a school and, and some people that's that way and they raise the funds. But what we do is we consult people that has been there for 10, 15, 20 years because this, this war has, I mean, this conflict is, Last, has lasted over seventy years, which means that this people has spent their whole lives with Myanmar displaced people. And we don't have we don't we don't feel confident to, to, to propose where to do it. We talk to our people, we propose where we think we could intervene, and then we get suggestions of which places are the right. So number one is the cultural um, cultural and language, and number two is the initiative we have we, have, we have a very naive attitude towards where to build and where was the suitable place. And, and we got many very good explanations of why not to do it in certain places. There are many different reasons, but that's one of them. The second one would be uh, related to culture, but for example, when you're trying to structure a team, you usually want to choose a leader. Yeah. And in our case, we thought, okay, the most skilled person will be, our, will be the construction leader, because mm-hmm. that's the way that we have been the way that we have operated all our lives. Uh, we also, this, this, we learn it not through consultancies, but we learn it through our own experience. We created a conflict in the team because the, one of the younger guys was the best one. We said, okay, you're going to be the leader. Uh, the next day, there was a huge conflict, some people left. and We realized that we should have, we should have counted with other people to let us know how to, how to structure a team. You cannot choose because the younger person will not feel entitled to give orders to an older person. Unless the person from the beginning has accepted his role and he's the one who's carrying stones rather than laying the bricks. But this has to come from the very beginning. If they all consider themselves equal, the age is super important. Even in the languages, I don't know, in Indonesian, uh, mm-hmm. even the languages determine if you're talking to somebody older or younger.
0: Wow. So
1: this, this culture related thing was one of the ones that we committed. We slipped a little bit and, and that we, lear- we, we learned. Mm-hmm. Apart from that, it's also poor, working in a very flexible way because the, the, we, we work very light on paperwork, let's say, and, um, on licenses. So we usually we usually have the right to build and we usually have some papers that, that explain that the, let's say, a migrant center is entitled to use that land, but people is very, people doesn't want to sign contracts, let's say, any of the times because they don't want to face the legal issues that it was, this could come. So yeah. we have to start a project knowing that it could be stopped any moment, which has not happened, but, but we need to flexibility to understand that at some point we have to have to change.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, you know, the cultural reference. So You and your team are learning from the people, and I'm sure the people are also learning from you guys, you know, the maybe organizing skills or work ethics, etc.
1: Uh, we definitely learn a lot from them. And also we learn a lot about what they prefer doing or what, they, what it has, um, what is difficult. Not difficult, or maybe some things they don't like. Also the construction techniques we use, for example, we try to make them, we try to choose labor intensive materials that require a lot of labor, which, which would mean that we will hire a lot of people for a longer period of time. Uh, the example of ramped earth walls, we, we, we consider it the best, the best kind of solution because we do it by creating a formwork, which the later we, we, we put layers of, of layers of dirt mixed with a little bit of gravel and a little bit of cement. And we don't use tools, we don't use mechanical tools. This means that it would be impossible to do this technique on a developed place without the use of machinery. But here you're trying to stimulate the economy by, by hiring more people more time. Uh, we learn, for example, that tampering, which is the the method of, of building these walls is something that they like, they enjoy, it's quite easy, quite straightforward, everybody seems kind of proactive about doing it, and we do that, but then we learn that painting is something that for some reason nobody wants to do, and we cannot say they hate, but they nobody likes it, so we try to avoid paint, let to avoid paint or to apply, uh, to apply as many layers. So, yes, during during construction, we have to play flexible about what they like to do or what they prefer to do because the outcome will be better.
0: And it's like giving them a sense of purpose, right? Or the commission.
1: They are somehow part of the design of the project. The outcome depends a lot on what they want or what they like.
0: Yeah. I also noticed that you had brought up the people's involvement and confidence over time, right? And that building the, in this site environment, had a very direct impact. So I am assuming that the impact psychologically to these people, you know, the confidence and maybe sense of belonging, are also very direct. We
1: we like to to think so, and our aim is to create, as 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 you mentioned, like, let's say an empowerment an empowerment tool through construction. Um, it's always, it's very obvious that uh, if you are proud of the place you live, or if you are proud of the community or your neighborhood, uh, the way you see yourself changes too. So, mm-hmm. so we do we do think that architecture is definitely an empowerment tool. But in our case, it would be more direct. Let's say construction itself, because right. construction jobs some in some of the countries are not very, they are not something let's say to brag about if you work in construction. But uh, we do allow them a lot of time to learn new techniques and to learn, not new, because most of the times they inspire what they do, just we give them enough time to be confident with them. We have people that know more in the team, and when they finish, you can tell that they're proud of what they're doing. One of the reasons for the more direct, even if it's again like an anecdote, is many of the times you see the workers at the end of the day taking a selfie in front of the construction,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then they post it on social media. I think if they wouldn't be proud of what they are doing, they would not be Showing their face behind the work, and and this, this kind of this kind of situation leads us to think that somehow most of the time it does work in, in that way. They're proud of what they do. They take pictures. They they hang out even there after 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 work. So yes, architecture is definitely an empowering tool. But I have to be, I think it's a very delicate topic too. And, and we work in a very small scale, so I don't want to. I, I don't want to make a statement that we directly create empowering architecture, but more that the process of construction can become empowered for the worker.
0: Yeah, it's almost like underrated, you know, in, uh, in urban settings, because I don't think we would see construction workers taking selfies, or actually maybe they do, but we just don't see them out in the open, uh, but so, um, how has everything, you know, your experience and your practice, changed how you perceive architecture or the architectural profession?
1: Um, of course, it has. My my vision of the architectural role—I mean, our role of as architects—has has changed completely. I think it's not only because I've had the chance to work in a in a say in a border context for so long, for me, for the last five years. It's just a matter of also spending more time doing architecture. And, and many of the ideas that you, that, that at least I had when I finished school, and many of us do, uh, many of architects do, uh, aesthetics are, are a huge part of, of our training. Uh, judging aesthetics and construction solutions is a huge part of our work. Uh, nowadays, I see that our role, uh, architecture is just a very small part of a successful project. Because the the way we try to mostly intervene in question in of infrastructures, uh, the architecture is important, of course, but if you don't combine it with those community meetings that I was talking about before, or if you don't monitor what happens with the building in the next two, three years, I don't think that your role as an architect was that important. I think that is a is a half that you're only you're only taking care of half of, of your duties. I think it's not in architecture, I think more and more people is object designers, industrial designers are also considering now what the afterlife of an object is, obviously. Whereas before, you could do design something that looks good, it sells good, and you don't care. And nowadays, it's super important to actually, from the very beginning, consider what materials you're going to use, and if they are not, okay. how, how much are they going to be, how, how easy it would be to recycle them in the future, or the life cycle of the object. So I think, or maybe I have a, Positive vision of this, but I think every field related to design is 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 understanding better the situation and how sustainability is not just a matter of making something green, but you have to consider the economics of the place, the social status of the people you work with, and of course the materials look and the outcome.
0: And, you know, when you said to be more involved in the building process, I'm sure it's not only for the architects, but also for the contractors, the builders and anyone who collaborated into building it to maybe in two, three years later, go back to the project and see their work. And so in a way, it can be something that is very empowering and it can be something that keeps them going, you know.
1: I think so, too, and, and good examples will encourage communities to accept foreign projects, foreign, let's say, foreign initiative projects in the future, whereas one or two bad examples would create the idea that, foreign, let's say, foreign aid is not what they want. And I'm saying this because I've, I've heard from a lot of people say that they don't want people to help them from outside because there was a school that they built and they didn't consider the rain, for example. They built it in the dry season, then they left, it started to rain, and it was a mess. So a lot of people in that area they are not very willing to hear another foreigner propose solutions to Ireland. And I think I think they're completely right because you it's based their experiences, didn't work out and they are maybe not willing to see a second the same time. They're just like closing up. So I think good examples can lead to better. And also um, and also I think good examples can lead to other architects that are usually younger ones, still try to realize what they what they want, what they like. Good examples can make the can make the field more attractive. Because before it was much more difficult. But now with communications, like with the kind of communications we have nowadays, it's kind of easy to work on a remote environment and still have have access, you can have a library that you can access online, for example. So nowadays I think this kind of job that requires us to live abroad for several months and for two, if to live in an absorption site, which was the case for our Cambodia project, is less it's less scary to put in to, to say it in some way. Now I think now now it's easier for people. Now before you had to be like really adventurous, if you want in the eighties you want to go to Congo to do a school, you need to have a very specific personality. Nowadays right. I think it's open. I think anybody can do it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And we will only be seeing more and more project leaders, aspiring project leaders, (laughs) when they're old enough. (laughs) They're old enough, So yeah, thank you so much, Juan, for sharing. It's always nice to hear from someone who is experienced in different setting and learn how empowering uh, architecture and construction can be for different people and the impact it can have on so many levels. So thank you so much. Really, really appreciate your being here.
1: Thank you so much for, for the invitation and, and for, a, for a whole set of podcasts you are doing um, touching these kind of topics, which are really interesting and, and they definitely need to be out there.
0: Thank you. This episode is sponsored by BioLiving an innovator in sustainable weaving practices for design and architectural applications.